Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everyone, it's Connor Boyle here, and before we go to today's episode, I have an important announcement to make. As you know, Intelligence Squared is about letting you engage with the world's most brilliant minds to challenge your thinking on the biggest conversations of our time. Whether it's through our podcast, debates or live streams, we believe that by presenting in a civil and respectful way both sides of the argument, we can expand people's perspectives. This is the only way to combat all that polarisation we're increasingly seeing in our world. To quote J.S. Mill, he who knows only his own side of the case knows little of that. If you believe in this mission, we think you should support us through Intelligence Squared Premium. Your support will directly help us to make even more amazing podcasts, debates and live streams, stage more great live events, take Intelligence Squared to fresh audiences to hear their perspectives so that we continue the work of expanding horizons and escaping echo chambers and your support will get you even closer to the world's most brilliant minds. By signing up, you'll get ad-free listening because I know some of you would prefer not to listen to those. One early episode per week, two bonus episodes per month, like our sit-down with Daniel Kahneman. I think we should be talking about how to make democracy work better than it does. The reason that I'm raising that question is that I can't think of a good answer. But I wish, perhaps, if Intelligence Squared arranged a debate, maybe there would be one. I would actually refuse the booking because I would say I'm a pessimist and I have no idea how to solve the problem. But perhaps there is an idea. And there are optimists around, so they should be heard. And if you sign up through Supercast, you'll also get a 25% discount on Intelligence Squared Plus, our exciting new streaming service where you can watch along or even join the conversation to ask your questions, a 15% discount and priority access to live events so that you won't miss out on tickets for those, and our new premium monthly newsletter, which includes event write-ups, commentary from other subscribers, and a curated list of the most impactful articles our team has been excited by in the past month. This is now available on all podcast platforms, including Spotify. And as a special thank you, you'll receive a 20% lifetime discount off the regular £4.99 a month or £49.99 a year if you sign up before August 31st. It takes less than 30 seconds to sign up, so go to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description. This is now available on all podcast players, including Spotify. That's IQ, the numeral two, premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description. Thanks again for all your support. Now, on to today's show. 
Welcome to Intelligence Squared. On today's podcast, Nicholas Brenborg, a science writer making us rethink our understanding of the aging process. He'll be discussing his best-selling book, Jellyfish Age Backwards, Nature's Secrets to Longevity. Talking to Nick Lass today is Helen Chersky, science communicator and broadcaster covering the physics of the natural world. Here's Helen with more. Thank you, Connor, and hello, everyone. Now, we live in a society which seems to be culturally terrified of ageing. Our newspapers, our books, everything we see tells us it is the worst thing that can possibly happen to us, and we should be doing everything we can to avoid it. But ageing does seem to be a fact of life. You know, out in the natural world, as well as in humans, things age. That's the way it goes. And in our experience, at least, things seem to get worse as we age. So humans have got a lot of interest in putting that off for as long as possible. So what does the science have to say about all of this? Is there any biological basis for all those things that they say in the self-help books and the articles about how to prevent ageing? Is it actually physically possible? Well, we're going to be digging into all of that this evening. So please welcome the author of the book we're going to be talking about, Nicholas Brenburg. He's a PhD student of molecular biology at the University of Copenhagen, and he's doing great things in the world of biotech. The book you've heard about, Jellyfish Age Backwards, Nature's Secrets to longevity, which was an instant bestseller. So that is what we're going to be talking about this evening. Nicholas, welcome uh, to Intelligence Squared. Um, I feel we need to start with the jellyfish in the title because it is such a good title. So perhaps tell us first, uh, do jellyfish really age backwards? Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. And uh, if we're going to start with the jellyfish, of course, if every jellyfish is not your average jellyfish that you see out in the sea that has these abilities. This jellyfish that I'm talking about in the title of my book is a little tiny jellyfish called Tuitopsis. And what's so special about it is that it can go from its adult stage back to something called the polyp stage. So that would be akin to taking a butterfly and turning it back into a caterpillar again, or like you, you and I reverting back to being a kindergartner again. Then the cool thing is that it, uh, this polyp stage, it can grow up anew to become an adult jellyfish again. Then if the scientists do the right trick, they can make the jellyfish revert back again. And then you can just get this cycle of de-aging and aging and de-aging and, and aging. And as le at least so far, no one has found a limit. So it might exist somewhere, but at least as far as we know, this is an example of biological immortality, basically. So it makes it makes aging sound like a very plastic thing, and that we'll we'll come on to that. But it's one of those things where as soon as you talk about something like something aging backwards, I mean, it sounds like the work of sci-fi films, right? So what sort of exactly. why are we so, why are we so fascinated by aging? I mean, it sounds like you know it's quite obvious that we don't want to die, but what is it that really gets us about this? Well, I think we're the only or we are the only animal that's kind of aware that we're gonna die someday. Uh, so it's like a, a uniquely human condition to worry that you're going to age and die eventually. But we can also see that, you know, in your intro, you say that uh, we are obsessed with this stuff. And I totally agree. But uh, I don't agree that it's a new thing. It's we've always been obsessed with this stuff. So if we go all the way back in history to actually some of the first written stuff we have, uh, it's a story called the uh, Epic of Gilgamesh. And that's basically a story of a king that leaves his people in the search of immortality. So... 
all the way back to the first written word, we already have people talking about this stuff. And of course, history is full of all kinds of like uh, elixirs and holy waters that are supposed to make you young. And also the early part of science is full of, you know, what we could probably call quarks today that promised eternal life if you just do this or you just do that. So it's really part of what it is to be human to, to worry about these things. What's different today is just that we finally actually at the stage where we can, for instance, take a mouse and then actually prolong its life. We're not talking magic or anything like that. We can actually prove that this stuff is possible now. So there's something that I guess we should cover right now at the beginning, which is that there is a difference between living a long time and ageing. Those are two separate things. So perhaps just set out that difference for us. Well, they, they are separate part of the way. So, so there is a thing called health span, where, of course, if I come here and, and tell you I'm going to help you live to 100, maybe you would be interested in, well, am I going to be most of that time in a healthy body or is along most of the time you prolong my life is that got just going to be me you know not able to walk having pain everywhere feeling weak and frail and so on so of course it's very very important that if we target aging we want to make sure that the people are like people are healthy longer not just live longer so we don't want to take someone who for instance is 90 today and then force them to stay around or stick around for 30 more years in like a frail old body we want it to be so that for instance in 30 years if you're 70 it feels like being 55 today if you're 50 maybe it feels like being 35 today so we want to like break that process of aging that makes us frail and weak and you know make basically makes us suffer at the end of our life. I mean, it feels like general health is taking us a long way. You know, if you look at pictures of people perhaps from 100 years ago and, and there are pictures of people that to us look like they're 70 and then you look at the caption and they're perhaps 40, right? So so presumably general health just has a lot, you know, I, we assume in the, in the intervening 100 years, you know, diets have got better and we've got medicine and so is this about more than just staying generally healthy? Well, a lot of that, uh, we don't actually know for sure why this is, but you're completely right that if we look at, say, especially, I would say someone who's 50, like 100 years ago, just looks really, really old, whereas someone who's 50 today can still look kind of young and be active and, and so on. And we don't know exactly why we've seen this change. Of course, there's been all these improvements. Uh, the best guess would be uh, vaccines, antibiotics, different kinds of antimicrobials. So basically, we can see that just the very fact of being infected with something, especially if you get a chronic infection, will actually make you age more quickly. So we have really in the last hundred years decreased our infectious burden, just the amount of yeah, gross bugs that live in and on us. So that might go a long way to explain this. And of course, we also have better diets somewhat. I mean, we weigh a lot, a lot more now. So in some ways we're not better, but we do have maybe a higher intake of vegetables and so on, at least like part of the population. Well, let's start in the animal kingdom, just because, you know, your book starts there because you've got these examples. I mean, like we mentioned the jellyfish at the start, where, you know, humans, we, we are just another animal. We're, we're quite sophisticated in some of the things we do, but, you know, we follow the same rules as everybody else. And, you know, you give the example, for example, of, of lobsters that as they get older, they just kind of get bigger and stronger. Yes. And so, you know, what are the examples in the in the natural world that suggest that perhaps, you know, you can break the rules that we think we've grown up with for how you age? Yes, actually, there's tons of animals that break the rule. It's just that we humans, of course, we have a very typical, like not a very typical, we have a long life for a mammal, but we have a, like a 
pretty typical aging tra- trajectory. We can also see it in our dogs, just faster in our cats and other animals that we have a lot of contact with. But if you go to nature, you have all these weird examples like the lobster, as you say, where basically, you know, you can define aging in a bunch of different ways. But one that's very often used is that as we grow older, our risk of dying increases uh, and our fertility decreases. So that's basically just showing that a body gets weaker. But if you take a lobster, every year a lobster is alive, it gets bigger and it gets stronger and it gets more fertile than it was in the previous year. So the risk of death actually decreases with time for this lobster. And that's basically what you can call not aging at all. So this lobster just kind of stays physically strong. And then always when I tell this to some people will be like, well, does that mean we have, you know, immortal lobsters? Will lobsters, the ones that we catch and eat, have they lived forever and so on? No, because actually what can happen at the end of a lobster's life is that it can get so big that it starts having physical problems due to its size. So it has nothing to do with aging or anything like that, but it can just become so big that some of its physical functions simply fail. Then it can uh, kind of die in that process. When it molts, yeah. So there are physical limits on, you know, how how quickly something can move oxygen around its body and how that type of machine works. There are size limits on that. And if you hit those limits, it doesn't matter how old you are. You just stop working. Exactly. So lobsters don't live forever, but they basically don't age. So old age for a lobster, as I say in the book, is not at all like for a human. It's not a period where you're weaker or anything. It's actually your best period. You're like your strongest, your most fertile. You're like the king of uh, the seabed, basically. And then, of course, you run into these physical problems at the end. Well, that's great for the lobster, isn't it? Um, so, well, so that raises another question, though, which is that, you know, when we look at... Um, so evolution is a is an imperfect process, you know, by its very nature. However, there are lots of things that happen which look like disadvantages and then you find out there actually is an advantage. So are there any advantages to aging? You know, do humans age because, you know, if you age, there's some other advantage that is a bit hidden to us or is it just a bad thing? <laughs> so the evolution of aging is actually, I wouldn't say it's controversial because there is some agreement but there is also a, um, a growing camp of people who disagree with the, the like prevailing theory. But basically, the prevailing theory is that, well, even if animals could live forever, most animals wouldn't live forever. So if we had this mouse that we just immortalized and it could basically live forever, we put it in a field... It won't take long before some predator gets it, before it gets an infection, before something happens, it gets in an accident even, so it will die eventually anyways. From like, even if it didn't have the aging process, it would die from from something else. So then for the mouse, it might make more sense to put some more resources into its early life, like get big fast, or at least get to an adult size fast, reproduce quickly, reproduce often, uh, instead of using its energy to, for like perfect repair of the body. Because if it's going to die, like statistically going to die in the next year anyways, the best evolutionary tactic is basically just get as many uh, young uh, youngs, get, get as many pups, as, qu- as quickly as possible and then you know uh, disregard the future because most likely you're not going to make it. And then if the mouse is lucky enough to make it to the future. Well, then it's going to pay the price for not having uh, had enough upkeep of the body in its youth. And it's basically, we're going to see that as aging. And that's basically the theory why, for instance, humans age and so on. So the reason then why we live a longer life than the mouse is that even in natural conditions, we uh, we have a quite low risk of death. Uh, predators are pretty scared of us ever since we invented spears and stuff. Uh, we have uh, pretty 
I mean, we still have risk of infections and accidents and so on, but we're also smart, so we can avoid some of that stuff. Uh, but there is, as I said, a not not always agreement because uh, experiments don't always align with these theories. Well, it sounds like the uh, perhaps the rock stars of the early 1970s, you know, who definitely lived a lot of life, front, front-loaded their lives, uh, perhaps are paying for it now, you know, different strategy um, to, to most people, perhaps. Um, so, so then now one of the ideas that's in your book is this thing of... Um, that actually the way to live a long life isn't actually just to wrap yourself in cotton wool and sit in a corner and never go out. (laughs) Because you might think, well, you know, if ageing is something which is bad, then stress would make it worse. So we should just hide away in a corner and basically protect ourselves from the world. Why doesn't that work? Well, that, that would be how to do it if you say you had a car and you really just want this car to last as long as possible, then the best thing you could do is find somewhere to park it inside in a nice temperature, you know, put uh, a sheet on top of it and then just never use it, never challenge the car, and then it will last way longer than the car you drive on a daily basis. So a lot of people think that would be the same with the body, right? If you just like, I don't know, I went to a hotel over here in Copenhagen somewhere, just like lived there, never had a problem in my life, never moved or anything, uh, that I would then also live longer. But the difference between us and then our physical or like our uh, objects like a, a car or a, or a phone is that biology is very dynamic. So, you know, if you actually think about, for instance, the human body, that's a lot of stuff we do that stresses us that actually is beneficial. And that's actually true for most biological uh, organisms. So, so the answer yeah, to the question could be that no, a human that doesn't isn't challenged won't live longer. Actually, quite the opposite. They will live shorter lives. So exercise is the best um, best example. When we exercise, a lot of people think like uh, the healthy bit is while I'm out running. But if you think about what's happening here, you like uh, damage your bones, you damage your muscles, your lungs are challenged uh, to keep the air flowing. You have uh, high p- blood pressure, you have a high pulse and all this stuff that's actually damaging to you. But then after you're done running, that's kind of a signal to the body that's like you need to grow stronger, you need to repair, and then that's what the body does. So in that way, stress can then be beneficial to the body. And we have a loads, uh, lots of uh, examples uh, along that, those lines. So that's, it's, I think, is it hormesis is the word for that? Um and how? What sort of stresses count? I mean, because it sounds as though the, the, there's got to be an optimum somewhere in there that you know. Because if you have extreme stress, I mean, people. I don't. I don't know whether it's true. People say you know a stressful thing happened and then my hair went grey, for example. Uh, you know, so so they connect stressful lives to markers of aging. So how? But where's the actually- balance? That's actually true that we have pretty good studies now that uh, your hair will gray during stressful events. We've also, you know, people have talked about it a lot of times uh, for a long time with US presidents, you know, when they get uh, in office, <laughs> they look all young and, you know, lots of color in the hair and then right. four or eight years later, they're completely gray. But it's actually reversible, uh, the newest studies show. So you can have hairs that turn gray and then once the stress uh, disappears, some of them will actually revert back to their original color. I did not know but that yeah. was possible. Yeah, I'm sure there's hope out there. There's, we, uh, like there's the ears of the audience they, have just pricked up. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, there's actually been studies where they where they even tracked 
individual hairs. And then sometimes on the hair, you can even see this where you can see it grows like gray. And then further down, it has a color again. Then maybe it goes gray again. So it is reversible, but of course it moves in one direction. So eventually you're going to turn gray, most people at least. Some stresses... Are they, are they not the right type or is it too much stress? What What's actually... Yes, yeah. so there's two things there. First of all, uh, homesis generally follows a pattern where no stress is bad because it makes you weak. And little stress is good because that's a signal to the body to grow stronger. And then you can overwhelm the body if you have a lot of stress. So for instance, in exercise, we know such a thing as overtraining. So you'll be very unhealthy sitting on your couch all the time. You'll be healthy out jogging once or twice, th- three times a week. But then you can also overtrain where you then uh, will actually damage your body because the, the thing that's beneficial is not the actual stress you do to your body. That's damaging. What's beneficial is the response your body has to being damaged. So if you overwhelm this response, or if you overwhelm your ability to repair yourself, you're basically breaking down your body. So we can see this, we can see this for loads of, of different things. Basically everything that's what we call hermetic has these limits. For instance, there's been some studies where they show uh, actually, uh, rodents and probably also humans can benefit from a little bit of radioactive radiation. But of course, we know if you get a lot of radioactive radiation, you're either going to get cancer eventually or you're going to die pretty much, you know, within a uh, while getting irradiated or within a few days. And actually, it also turns out that if you remove what's called background radiation, then mice will actually live shorter lives. So nothing is bad. Some stress is good. Too much stress is also bad. Brilliant. And I would just like to remind the audience, we are we are only halfway to question time, but you can be putting your questions in the chat now. You can go down to the new questions tab um, and you can also tweet, uh, tweet. I don't know what tweeting is, but I suppose you could do that too. You could tweet using the hashtag uh, IQ2. Um, so we talk, you were talking here about stresses. It sounds like you need to know whether you're aging or not. So how do you measure aging? Because, you know, it sounds like if, if you've got some graph and you see that you've just gone a bit too far, you know, maybe you can do less of or more of whatever it is. But how, how does a scientist actually measure aging? That's a very good question because it, it is hard to measure and it is also hard to even, you know, you need to align that you're actually talking about the same thing. For some uh, purposes, aging is just defined mathematically as uh, the fact that your risk of death increases with age. So the, the longer you've been around, the higher your risk of death is in a given year. Then if you want to study the body and then say, basically, we have this person, we maybe we know they're 70 years old. Everyone knows that two 70-year-olds are not necessarily uh, biologically alike. One of them might still run like marathons or something, and one of them have a problem walking to the corner store or something. Uh, so you could also say that there's such a thing as biological age, where you say, well, uh, it's not your your age, there's not the amount of uh, candles on your birthday cake, it's how fit or how well-functioning your body actually is. And there's been some suggestions about how to measure this biological age. One of them uh, uh, relies on something called epigenetics. That's one of the best ways we have right now. It's called, uh, some people even call it the biological clock, uh, where you can basically... Uh, where you can basically take a blood uh, sample, for instance, and then measure uh, the biological age. So how 
this person, what risk of death do they have and uh, how long do we project them uh, to live and what are the uh, risk of various diseases? You can actually see that in a single measurement. I can see that, I mean, the problem with these measures that are statistical is that you have to wait until after someone's died to find out how you know how old yes. they were, in, which is which possibly is a problem. <laughs> it's a pain for everyone that wants to make a new drug, and they want to target aging, or they even want to target an age-related disease. You're like, okay, let's round up some like 60-year-olds or 70-year-olds, and we will give them the drug. But before we even know if it works, there's been like 10 years passing. You know, then eventually the researchers involved will have like two, three or four shots in their whole career to actually do some of this stuff. And then they have to go, you know, they have to retire after that period. So that's that's a big, big problem that is really hard to test whether you were uh, it worked in a short amount of time. So do you think there will ever be a, you know, a sort of, how do we get around that problem? Is there ever going to be a test or like something, you know, a blood test or something that people look at and go, oh, you know, your your literal age is, I don't know, 40, but actually you're really effectively 35 or 45. Is, is that even possible? Yes, definitely possible. And we already, as I said, we have what's called the epigenetic age uh, that does something like this. Uh, it's very good to use if you use like a population. Uh, if you use like a lot of people, you can pretty much estimate uh, like for a group, the biological age. It's it's not maybe reliable enough to, to you know, individually I take it now and then I take it in two years and then I see how much I age. But we'll get there. And there's also developments for other Uh, other types of biological clocks because I think a lot of scientists know that or I know a lot of scientists know that this is a huge problem and you know solve it and you will really be doing good because it will speed up so much like imagine if we want to test a new medicine for aging and we can just give it to people and then two years later we can test did it like slow down the biological aging and then if it's a no we already can like make a pivot to something else try again instead of waiting like 10-15 years and then get a no and then you only have to like you only get to think about what then to do Hi everyone, it's Connor Boyle here. If you don't already know, we've launched Intelligence Squared Premium. It's an exciting new way to take your Intelligence Squared experience to the next level so you can make the most informed decisions about the issues that matter in the company of the world's greatest minds and speakers. Crucially, it lets us produce even more amazing podcasts for you, as well as running some more live events and big debates. This is now available on all podcast players, including Spotify, for just $4.99 a month. Sign up now at iq2premium.supercast.com Dot com. That's IQ, the numeral two, premium.supercast.com, or see the link in the description. Thank you for all your support. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. 
That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared. netsuite.com squared. So you, I mean, you're at the beginning of your research career. Do you see, do, do you, which path do you think it's going to be for you? Do you think you're going to have, you know, the, the three or four shots to get this right? Or do you, do you think that really, you know, you might get, you might actually get, have a measure within your research career? Well, I certainly hope uh, the stuff I'm going to, uh, or the stuff I'm researching is, is not this area, but I really, really hope that it's going to improve enough that, that this is um, stuff we can do. Actually, I'm pretty certain that it's going to be like, it's going to be something that's going to be totally routine, that we will have different uh, biological estimates of like biological age. And then maybe you can take them uh, together to see if we have three or four of these different things. They all move in the same direction. Then maybe that's enough for us to conclude that we have a drug that, that slows down the aging process. It certainly doesn't sound like a research area for the impatient. <laughs> so, well, let's. So, I think when it comes, you know, the, the, there's been a lot of discussion over of this over the years, obviously. And one of the things, one of the words that people may have heard in connection with aging is is telomeres, and these are sort of little bits at the end of DNA. Um, so, just tell us a little bit about what telomeres are and why they keep coming up in this discussion about aging. Yes, so that's actually something that's been used as another biological clock before the epigenetic clock. It's basically this little, uh, I call it the aglet, like or you, I use an aglet, the little piece of uh, plastic that sits at the end of a shoelace as like uh, uh, an example in the book. So it basically does the same thing. It protects the ends of the chromosomes from getting damaged. But what's really interesting about these telomeres is that every time a cell divides, they get a little shorter. So... Already there, you might see the, how they could function as like a clock. Every time, as time passes and cells divide, they get shorter and shorter and shorter. And actually, when uh, they get very short, the cell enters what's called senescence. So it basically stops uh, dividing. It stops most of its functions. Sometimes it will then die. Sometimes it can become what I call a zombie cell in the book. But basically, it's an old cell at that point. So that would then mean that, you know, we start out with a long telomeres on our cells and then they get shorter throughout our lives. So people thought this is a perfect biological clock. And what would then happen if maybe we could find a way of prolonging these telomeres? Because we actually have certain cells in the body that can prolong them, can make them longer. Uh, so people have been researching this quite heavily. It turns out to be very hard. Uh, and then it also turns out that even if we succeed, it might not be such a good idea as we thought 10 years ago, because it turns out there's a reason why we don't just have unlimited amounts of, or length of telomeres in our cells, and that is that it can promote cancer. So basically, it's pretty smart for your cells to have kind of like a mechanism that stops them dividing after a certain amount of time because what is a cancer? It's basically cells that grow out of control. So if a cancer cell wants to really succeed, it has to find a way to override these telomeres shortening. So actually 80% of human cancers actually have this ability or even more has the ability to prolong the telomeres, but using this uh, enzyme called telomerase, 80% of them get access to it somehow and then prolongs the telomeres. Well, and I mean, so this is, so I guess this is where um, a lot of the things, and we'll go through in a bit some of the, the myths or otherwise, but this, you know, as we get better at genetics and epigenetics and 
gene editing. So you use, you've got this example in the book of Liz Parrish, who wanted to edit her own genes in order to change uh, this enzyme. To prolong her life. Yeah. And basically, so just yeah. basically run us, run us through what, what happened and why it was hard <laughs> why, and, and, and whether it's an ethical thing to do. Yes. So basically what she wanted to, to do is uh, she wanted to do the exact thing actually we just talked about. So pr- prolong her telomeres in her cells. She did a test. You could see she had quite short telomeres in her cells. So she was like, if I want to <clears throat> rejuvenate myself, I should prolong these telomeres. And we have this enzyme actually that can prolong the telomeres, but the cells keep it under tight lock because of the exact reason we talked about. If uh, cells turn cancerous, it will try to get this enzyme because then it can prolong its telomeres and it can divide forever. So basically she wanted to take an extra copy of this enzyme and put it into all her cells so that you can think of an enzyme like as a little machine that can do something. So she would take like a spare machine, put it into a cell and then make the, the little machine prolong her telomeres. And then she was hoping that would uh, then rejuvenate her. So you can't do those kind of self-experiments even on yourself uh, in the US where she's from. You can't do it in most of Europe either. So she went to Colombia and had it done in uh, in a lab down there that specializes in that stuff. And, you know, of course, it's a kind of risky thing to do. Uh, it, there is a risk of cancer, even also just from having the procedure done. But then again, you can say she's she's experimenting on only herself. Uh, uh, the rest of us might learn something valuable from this experiment. Uh, and if she's willing to do this, then you know she should. You can say she should, you know, control her own body in that way. We we shouldn't like this. Shouldn't be the rest of us deciding what she should do, like she wants to do with her body. Uh, but there is of course a problem that you could risk uh, copycats uh, because at least Liz Paris has like looked into this a lot and she knows the risk. You could have copycats that are just like, oh, I can rejuvenate myself. Let's go to Colombia and let's just have these and then maybe get cancer or something without knowing. So of course that's an ethical problem, but yeah. Uh, it's it's a difficult it's a difficult question for sure. Well, I mean, and as you said, you know, it, people throughout history, especially the rich people, you know, rich people have put a lot of effort into trying to remain alive over the years, and it feels like that's, as you say, in some sense, if they want to do it, it's up to them. But there's this question of how how do you how do you measure or monitor or test the quality of information that they're making that decision on? You know. Someone, I'm sure that billionaires are surrounded by people, very persuasive people who are trying to talk them out of their money. <laughs> you know, definitely. We have a lot, a lot of examples on that uh, throughout history. So that's, I mean, it's a problem for everyone that uh, we, I guess, in general, also as a society, we have this problem that, uh, you know, um, biology, medicine, and so on is really, really complicated, um, and it's something that a lot of us have an interest in. Of course, it's our own body; we have an interest in it, uh, so we want to be involved and take decisions and so on. But it is when it is this complicated; it's also hard to make an informed decision if you're not um, educated in the field, maybe. But on so that's like on one hand, but on the other hand, you know, it's your body, so you should also have you know, the right to do with it as you as you want, basically. 
So just before we carry on, just a reminder, we are not quite at questions yet, but audience, you can put questions in the new questions tab or you can tweet hashtag IQ2 and we'll get to questions in about 10 minutes. Um, now, some of the, some of the I thought, the most interesting parts of the book were some of the newer science. I mean, a lot of these, these ideas that have been around for 10 or 20 or 30 years and the science has got better, you know, the studies have got better, but it's the same idea. Um, but then you were writing about things like uh, microbes, for example, and and um, things that interact with with Alzheimer's. So maybe let's deal with the microbiome, which is all the little all the little cells of us that aren't actually us. Um, what do they have to do with aging? Yeah, so you can say that uh, you know the whole microbe thing is is kind of an old thing, but the new thing is what's called the microbiome. So back in the day, we used to think that the human body was basically sterile. Unless, uh, like, if we got some kind of bacteria or virus <clears throat> inside us we would have uh, a disease and then once the disease was over that meant that we were back to being sterile again so now with modern methods we know that's like completely false we actually have more foreign cells than we have human cells so that could be bacteria could be different kinds of fungi we have lots of viruses inside us as well at all times and so on so uh, you can in the book i think i, I use um a tree in the rainforest to describe this. So you have this tree and maybe it would prefer to be left alone, but instead it's home to all these different species. And a lot of these species just uses the tree as a home. They don't really affect it in any way. Some of them might even benefit it. It could be birds that spreads its seed or whatever. But then of course you could also have organisms that directly hurt the tree that maybe eventually even kills the tree. And it's the same with us. So lots of microbes that just live in and on us without causing too much trouble. Some microbes that help us out even, that will make us, uh, for instance, um, helps runners become more, uh, have more endurance and so on. And then we have the disease causing ones, uh, especially if they grow out of control, they can, they can cause disease. And, and how do they affect aging? How, you know, we've got all these little microbes doing their various things what's that got to do with us as a as, and how we age well we can there's different different studies for instance there's been studies in what's called a killifish which is this tiny little fish that actually has a microbiome in its gut that's pretty similar to the one that is in humans so uh, some german scientists have taken these little uh, fish and then in middle age they just removed the microbiome what then happens is that then the fish actually lives longer than it used to but then if they take this fish that doesn't have a microbiome anymore, and then you take the microbiome from a young fish and put it in instead, then it lives even longer. So that kind of shows that when we grow old, the microbiome kind of turns on us. It becomes, uh, <clears throat> it changes. So you have all these different species that live in harmony with each other. But with age, some of the bad species tend to take over. So just getting rid of that can prolong life. But if you then introduce some of the good species again, like from the young uh, fish, then you can live even longer. So that, that shows that it's both harmful and beneficial. It depends on what species uh, we're talking about. Well, I can see, you know, I'm, I'm sure uh, I won't, uh, the audience has probably thought this too, that the there's so many sci-fi books and films that are basically the rich old preying on the poor young you know that somebody and it, and it is it is in some ways there are serious ethical problems with this even today but is this something where you know the young have to be asked to to donate blood or to give up their cells to help the old how does this work well there has been um, i talk about um 
about blood in the book as well. There's been these studies that that showed that um, basically young blood can be rejuvenating and old blood can be uh, aging accelerating. So then these American entrepreneurs had the idea of like paying people my age to go donate blood and then they would take that blood and sell it to older like millionaires, billionaires, so on. That was closed down by the FDA. Uh, It's not science backed at all yet. It's just, you know, there's been a few studies in mice and so on. Uh, A little bit in humans, but, but not a lot. And that's... So there are those, of course, this is a field filled with like ethical dilemmas and questions that we have to figure out. But I would say I'm not so, actually, I'm not very nervous that it's going to be like rich people are just going to find the secrets to immortality and just keep it away from the rest of us. Well, they could, maybe they can buy it from the rest of us. I don't know. Um, okay, so let's get, just before we get to questions, let's get to a bit of myth busting because there are all these things, you know, that there is calorie restriction and this whole thing about whether whether red wine is healthy and fish oil and all the you know there's these as a repeated thing you know if you ask someone on the street what do you think might stop you aging they'll probably come up with one of these things are any of them do any are any of them backed by science these are the basic everyday things there's a lot of stuff that is backed by science the ones you talk about there is probably not so yeah Uh, (coughs) excuse me Fish oil might have a slight benefit for cardiovascular disease, so lowers your risk of getting a, a blood clot, a, um, a heart attack, and so on. It's not at all as much as people say when you hear about, oh, you should eat fish, you should. It's a little bit. Uh, fish oil is, is cheap, you know, fish is tasty, you might as well do it, but it's not, it's not a huge thing in any way. The red wine story is unfortunately false. It's been something we talked about for a long time, but unfortunately it turns out that if you do look at these studies on whether a little bit of alcohol is beneficial for you, if you look at the ones where the alcohol industry is involved somehow in you know sponsoring the research or whatever, it looks like a little bit of alcohol is beneficial. If you look at all the other studies, it looks like there's no benefit to any alcohol and it's just, you know, the more you drink, the more harmful it is. Well, actually, there was a there was a really, I think, a really important point that you made uh, in the book associated with that and a few other things, which is that um, obviously there's two ways you can do a study like this. You can either take a group of people, divide them into two, tell one lot to drink red wine and the other lot not to, or you can just go out into the population and find people who drink red wine and try and match them based on age. And that one has a problem. Tell us what the problem with that is. Yes. So basically, if you just look at people, we know that rich and well-educated people just live longer. Some of it is probably access to healthcare, uh, but even in a country like Denmark here, where you know we have universal healthcare and everything, there's still this difference. So some of it is probably also that uh, well-educated people listen to health advice more than less educated people. But that will then give you this effect where... Everything that rich and well-educated people like or do will be correlated to living a long life. Even if it has nothing to do with causing the long life, you will just see uh, it as a result because it's something well-educated people do. So for instance, I use wearing glasses as an example, Um, maybe also a little stereotypical, but if you looked at it, you probably find that wearing glasses or needing glasses is correlated with living a long life. But of course, if we took some random guy on the street and then, you know, somehow forced him to have bad eyesight that wouldn't prolong his life the reason we see this correlation is maybe because um, 
well-educated people have a higher risk of needing glasses, maybe because they stay indoors uh, a lot doing childhood reading or whatever. Uh, so then if you just do these studies and don't correct for this stuff, you'll just find all these funny things that, you know, could is correlated with a long life, but will not help you live longer in any way if you adopt it. And it's like not something you do already. And yeah, red wine could be one of these as well, where it's like the favorite alcohol of the, the like, wealthier class of people in most countries uh, and that might be why it looks like it's beneficial okay so just before we get to questions from the audience i have two more and one of them is do you think that there is a solution to aging i mean oh is 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 immortality on the cards and if it was would that be fair to future generations because you know there's a lot of people in the world and maybe people have had their turn so is it possible and would it be a good idea it's definitely possible. We can see it in the animal kingdom. Maybe we don't know if immortality is possible for such a complex uh, animal as us, but we know other complex animals that can live like 400 years, 500 years, and so on. <coughs> and so definitely is possible, no doubt about it. Then uh, when it's going to happen is another question. Uh, you can say that as long as med medical science keeps progressing, it's going to happen at some point. Like we're going to prolong and get a long life some at some point. The big question is, is it going to be our generations? You know, the people alive today, are we going to benefit from this? Or is it going to be some future people? And we're just laying the foundation and then we never get to actually, uh, actually see the result of this work. No one really knows. So we could be lucky. We could be like, we could be the last mortal generation, the, the last generation that just like, just almost made it there, but don't make it. We could also be the first generation that really gets to live a long life. Uh, well, we are out of time. We have all aged an hour during this uh, interview, but hopefully it's it's time used well. And well, I am definitely if, feeling very happy people, that I had already before this plan to go for yes, a swim. If so. people get some <laughs> new habits, maybe it has turned back the aging a little bit, spending this hour, but maybe gaining <laughs> gaining some extra time if it makes them healthier. Well, there you go. You can't say that for every uh, online event or podcast that you may hear. Okay, we are out of time. Um, my thanks. Thank you so much, Nicholas Brenberg, for joining us. Uh, the book is Jellyfish Age Backwards. Thank you also to our audience and to Intelligence Squared. And goodbye. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. For more information, go to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description. Thank you for your support.